thousand years. Can we even fathom it? Can we even understand what it means? Our country hasn't even been around for a quarter of that. So it's hard for us Americans to understand what a thousand years of culture is, let alone a thousand years with a king in charge. And what a blessing that would be if your king was a righteous king. If you knew that he was never going to falter, that his reign would be holy and righteous the whole time. You could rest in that. You could find some comfort in that. And that's what we are promised here in Revelation chapter 20. Now, to get this chapter in some context, I've been listening to a few commentaries and things, and it's, it's important to review a little bit here. Back in Revelation chapter 12, we see the last trumpet. I believe that's when Christ will come back at some point in time during that trumpet. I believe that that is three and a half years into the tribulation. Not everybody believes it this way, and I, there's room for error on both sides of that one. But that's kind of where I, I fall. I see, we see the death of the two witnesses here. We see there's desecration in the temple happens at that time. And the same trumpet we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, that we read for um, call to worship this morning. Uh, it says that it will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, there, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. Something amazing happens. I would say magical, but I don't believe in magic. I believe in God. Something God-like happens, maybe is the best way to describe that. In Revelation chapter 16, we studied the seven bowls of God's wrath. I believe that we're off the planet this time, but during those seven bowls, there are going to be converts to Christianity. During the last three years of the tribulation, some of them will die. Some of them will live on and uh, persevere we should be praying for those believers. It's not going to be an easy time. I think you look at chapter 17 through 19, I think it takes that last bowl specifically, but maybe some of the other bowls incorporated, and I'm not 100% sure there. And it's a detailed look of what's going to happen in the political structure, what's going to happen in the, uh, the rulers of this world and how it's going to affect each and every one of us. And you'll see that particularly, I think, in the seventh bowl. And at the end of it, we see Christ coming back. We see Christ coming back in all his glory, and he wins the final battle. We find that final battle in chapter 20. Um, of So we see... A, they stand up against him. We see him standing up against him again at the end of the thousand-year reigns. And guess what? After, he, he wins them all. He wins all the battles. We are competing, facing a defeated foe, folks. Satan is defeated. The enemy is defeated. Death can't hold us down, right? There's nothing that can stop a true believer, except for God himself. And if we're following his ways, we don't have to worry about being stopped. So that's kind of exciting. So, all right. As we go, we have 
Now in chapter 20, we find this main theme, and it's at the top of your bulletin, the notes. It says, for those who are faithful during the journey will find pure joy with Christ in the end. Christ is worried. Christ is looking at. He's not worried. He doesn't worry about anything. Christ is looking at our faith walk. How are we doing on this life? Um, And then does it deserve the reward in the end? So a lot of times as Christians, we want to go skip to the end. We want to look at the reward. And Christ is not concerned about that as much as he is with the journey. So Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, reads like this. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, the old serpent, who is the devil, Satan. I think we got all Satan's names right there. Just so we're, we're clear, every single one of them was bound. And he bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angels threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterwards, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue or accepted his mark or on their forehead or on their hands, and they came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until a thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection, for them the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay. So as we go on this faith walk, we have the journey, don't we? And Christ is concerned about the journey. And the deception of Satan has been taken away. One of Satan's best tools is to deceive. How does he do that today? How does he get us to be deceived? I think this one the same way as he did in the garden. Did God really say that? Another good way is to get the believer to think that he doesn't exist. Well, Satan's not really real. You don't really believe that stuff, do you? Or another one is to get him to think that God doesn't exist. Or to get regular people to think that they are their own God. And so why should I serve them if I'm concerned only about myself? We must be faithful to read God's word and we must pursue God through prayer and community. And when we use those three tools, we can learn how to love our neighbor and love ourselves, just uh, like Jesus did. Chapter 20 introduces us to four different types of people in the end times. Those who are dead in Christ. These are the believers that are now, have come before us that have died as Christians. Those who were called up in chapter 12-ish, and they have a glorified body. We see those uh, described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in our call to worship. Then we have the believers after the rapture, that, but before the second coming. And regardless 
of these, everyone in this kingdom of God will become a believer. So everybody at this point will be a believer in Jesus Christ. Okay, They will believe and confess that, and there will be not any unbelievers at this point in time. The fourth group, <coughs> excuse me, will be the children of group three, okay? And thereabouts. The group of believers will enter a new covenant with Christ, with Christ reigning before him. Why do I say there'll be a new covenant? Because right now we are in the covenant of grace. We are walking by faith that Christ exists and that uh, God exists. When we enter this phase of belief, we will have... Um, Christ reigning with us, and we will have um, proof right there that we won't need faith because Christ will be reigning. He will be exactly like he said he would be, and so there will be a different type of covenant going on between God and man. I don't know necessarily what that's going to look like, uh, but we will have um, no deception from Satan, and we'll have assurance that Christ is God. So God was in their presence, and they became dependent on God to sustain them. And I think we see this another place in Scripture where you see the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years. They said, oh, we don't, we're too scared to go into the promised land. And then they're like, oh, well, God said we should go, we should go. And then God says, well, it's too late now. We were supposed to go when I told you the first time, but you didn't listen. And so now you're going to be dependent on me for 40 years in the desert, and you will learn how to um, depend on me and teach this to your kids, and they will get to inherit the kingdom. So those who are faithful during the journey will find pure joy with Christ in the end. And we want to focus in on the effort during that journey. If you ever were put on trial, if you ever think about it this way, if you were ever put on trial for the sake of Jesus and the word of God, would there be an evidence enough to convict you that, that you were a follower of Jesus? In other words, do you, to say it another way, do you live like Jesus? Do you know his word? Do you share it with his, your friends? Do you know his teachings? Do you follow through? Are you a person of character? What is the proof? Can you give me examples of how people have recognized your faith and told you that? That's difficult sometimes. Sometimes it's easy. Can you give me examples of how coworkers or acquaintances know that you love Jesus? What about during Christmas time? Did your family say, oh, here comes the houses? I'm probably going to say that long prayer during supper. Yay. Sometimes I feel like that's, I'm the pastor, so at um, certain sides of the family, I get to do the prayer, and you better believe I stick the gospel in that prayer <laughs> during that time. But I try to live out the gospel so it, it has some meat, right? If you just stick it during a, a meal prayer, there's no, there's no substance to that prayer. Phil was saying, well, you gotta, you got to live that out, too, and it's got to be a part of you. And um, it becomes a lifestyle. 
and I'm, we're excited to see that journey that the Lord's working on his life, and I hope he works on each one of us. Another way is um, been coaching. You ask your players, who are you when the lights turn off? What kind of character do you have off the court? Because the character that you have off the court is going to shine on the one that's on the court. What does you, what's your day-to-day relationship with Christ look like? Verse 6 says, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Is Christ going to be able to recognize you as, as one of his followers? They were identified as followers of Christ by their words and their actions. They walked with Jesus on the way to heaven, and when they got there, he knew them by name. He knew them by name. Well, is that important? Well, if you read Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 46, you'll find out it's pretty important that Christ knows you by name because otherwise he'll say, depart from me because I never knew you. And that's a little too scary for me to want to know. Because how long is heaven? How long are we going to live in heaven? For a couple of years, 10, 20 Eternity, right? How long will we live in hell if we don't choose to go with God? Eternity, right? It's a big decision. So we have 80-ish years to figure out what we're going to do for eternity. The age of grace. Because God could have said, you're just going to hell because you're born evil and you deserve that punishment. And we couldn't really argue with him. But God says, I'm going to send my son to be the hope. If you remain faithful in him and his word, and you profess him and his word, then you get to be with me in eternity. That's pretty grace-filled, isn't it? Those who are filled, those who are faithful during the journey will find pure joy with Christ in the end. Let's read Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. In this we have the final defeating of Satan. When the thousand years comes to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog. In every corner of the earth, he will gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as a sand on the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on, on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who, was, who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beasts and the false prophet and there they would be tormented day and night forever and ever. The last battle. This is how I fight my battles. Do you get this? Who fought that battle? Jesus did, right? Everybody gets out. So me, as a very competitive male, I kind of don't like this battle. Because I'm like, I'm ready, Lord. I'm going. I got this. And he's like, no, no, no. This is my game. This is my time. 
I got this. Boom. And it's done. It is finished, just like he said on the cross. And he wipes it out. He eradicates it. And why does he do this? Why would he let Satan come back to deceive for a short time again? Why would he do that? Well, this is one of the best verses in the Bible on free will. It's these 7 through 10. Because even these children of these followers get an opportunity to choose whether they want to follow God or not. And this, this decision is very similar to the same decision that the angels had to make. Remember when a third of the angels fell from heaven? Where do you get that? You can find that in Ezekiel 34 and Isaiah 17-ish. It's, in, it's one of the teens of Isaiah. I can't remember that one for sure. But I think it's half of 34. I think it's Isaiah 17. But I'm not 100% sure about that. You read about Gog and Magog. Okay? You read about this fight that happens and things. And, and John references that fight. What do we find in the battle of Gog and Magog? Who wins? God's people win. Because God fights for them. How does he fight? Relentlessly. Uh, there's a song we sing sometimes. He won't relent until he have it all. Until he has it all. Lord, my heart is yours. He wants every room in the house cleaned up, made presentable for him. He wants it all. He is a jealous God. He tells us that from the very, very beginning. The Ten Commandments starts off, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We should have known. This is what I'm getting into? Yeah, because this is how I fight my battles. I fight my battles with his authority. I fight my battles with his power. I fight my battles on my knees. And so if he is a God that is worthy to be worshipped, he wants us to make that decision. And so he asks us to um, come before him and surrender to him and fight on our knees with his authority. And so he does that same thing with these children. He gives them the opportunity to choose the same way. Why do I say it's similar to the angels? Because the angels, do the angels, do the angels or don't they know that God is God? I would say the angels probably know God is God, right? A third of them chose not to follow, and they were cast down. So they, had, they knew God was God, yet they chose to disobey him. These children, for a thousand years, they're going to know that God is God. They're going to see it. They're going to understand it. Everybody's going to be like, yep, Jesus is over in Jerusalem. He's reigning. He's got... His authority, his power, it's undeniable. And Satan's going to come and say, is it undeniable? Did he really say that you had to follow him? And that deception is going to come back, and they're going to say, well, I don't know. There'll be a choice to make. Are we going to follow God? Are we going to choose him? And lines will be formed again. And God will fight that battle 
and he will refine his kingdom so that only he has the authority because he's deserving of it. It's not like he's an, a mean or a wicked God. He's a God that's loving. He wants the best for us. And if sin walks into his kingdom, it will corrupt his kingdom, and he has to eradicate it. So Satan gets all these recruits, these rebels, and prepares for the reward. The sides, they come together. The fire falls from heaven. The battle's over before it even starts because the battle belongs to the Lord. Judgment is handed out, and Christ has established himself as the victor. So let's bring it home. Where in your life are you holding back and trying to fight the battle by yourself? Is it in your income? Is it in your health? Is it in um, your family? Your occupation? Maybe it's the next point in your career. Maybe you've gotten to a certain point and now God's leading you into the next place. How are you fighting your battles? We do that through prayer. It's time to let go. It's time to let God to work. It's time to fight on our knees. This is how I fight my battles. I pray. I pray. How do I pray? How do I pray? I pray boldly because I have a God who loves me and he wants, and when I'm walking in his will, he will give me all that I need. What does that look like? A lot of times it looks like character. You ever look at, we pray in Jesus' name, right? Well, Jesus' name, we found out through reading Revelation and studying it. His name is synonymous with his character. And when we develop our character look like his character, then he puts a stamp of approval on us. We pray defiantly because our foe has been defeated. We pray full of grace and mercy because we're not any better than anybody else. We don't set ourselves on a pedestal, nor do we set anybody else on a pedestal. We follow the Lord. We pray often because we need our instruction from our risen Savior. How did Jesus do it? Did Jesus just like, well, I'm God, so I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to go walk along my journey, and I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do because God and I are one, and I don't really need to communicate with him. No, that's not how I did it at all, is it? Often, he withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Often. The God, the creator of heaven and the earth, prayed to his heavenly father, so he had direction on where to go. It's craziness. Maybe we should do it as well. Those who are faithful during the journey will find pure joy with Christ in the end. Let's finish off the chapter, verses 11 through 15. The final judgment. Now, I haven't, I haven't tallied these up, but look how many times it says death or dying in this passage, right? Because the first resurrection was the believers. This is kind of the second resurrection. These are the, all the unbelievers that are going to go and face judgment. So I saw a great throne judgment 
and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw death and a great and small standing before God's throne, and the, or I saw the dead, great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were open, including the book of life. He still gives them hope. They're still the book of life. They choose it. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, the death and the grave gave up their dead, and all the judging according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. And according to those whose, whose name was not found recorded in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. A lot of death there, isn't there? A lot of it. And our, our, I've heard this out of context saying, well, the second death, God, Jesus talks about the second death. There's no eternal death. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says there is an eternal death. He says there's a, it's a fire that doesn't go out where the worm never dies. And here we have the final judgment. And I, if I, my voice was good this week, would have sang this song, but I wasn't good enough to lead it, and it, we've never sang it before. But this song kept coming back to my mind. If you've ever read or ever heard the song or the CD, Revival in Belfast by Robin Mark, this is the conclusion song on it. It's a very, very good CD. It's one of the very first worship CDs that came out during the worship movement. I think it kind of started the worship movement. Um, what would you say the worship movement is? Uh, I would say it's praise and worship music on the radio instead of just contemporary Christian music. Um, to feel good music that makes you feel good. This is actually praising God um, and is focused on Him. And this is one of the very first CDs to come out with that. It was back in the, the mid, mid-90s. Uh, I didn't get it until the late 90s, so it probably came out right around 93, if I recall correctly. The song is called, When It's All Been Said and Done. When It's All Been Said and Done. He concludes the CD with this, and I think it's great. It says, when it all's been said and done, there's just one thing that matters. Did I do my best to live for truth? Did I live my life for you? When it's all been said and done, and all my treasures, they'll mean nothing. Only what I have done for love's reward will stand the test of time. Lord, your mercy is so great that you look beyond our weakness, that you found purest gold in miry clay. That's what he's done with us. He's found pure gold in miry clay. He's turned sinners into saints. I will always sing your praise here on earth and in heaven after, for you join me at my true home. When it's all been said and done, this is the key here. You're my life when life 
is gone. Such a great song. And it's a nice flute that goes along throughout that song and is a very retrospective. You're my life. Think about this. God is our eternal life when our life here on earth is gone. Friends, we see the books are open and the choice is ours. The choice is yours. Stop living to please yourself. God has called us to something bigger than that. Surrender your way to make it equal and come alongside God's way so that your faith may save you and your deeds will be rewarded. How are our deeds rewarded? After we accept his free gift given to us in his grace. Because those who are faithful during the journey will find pure joy with Christ in the end. Let's pray and then take communion. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for being our blessing here on earth and ever after. Lord, we look to you for our true home. And our joy that comes from you will stand the test of time. After all is said and done, Lord, what will we have? Will you look down and see the battle that we've done, the battle on our knees? Lord, we fight our battle on our knees because you are our commander. We receive our calling from you. Guide and direct us closer to you, Lord. Forgive us when we stray on our path. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.